episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro FM, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and we have today regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, who is one of three representatives to the town of Brattleboro, as well as Matt Dunn, who is the founder and executive director of the Center on Rural Innovation. Located, I believe, in White River Junction. Is that correct, Matt? Uh, uh, Heartland Three Corners, actually. Heartland Three Corners. Um, so glad to have you today. And, and one of the things we're going to talk about with Matt is some of his organization's findings around rural employment in the wake of COVID. But one thing I want to talk to you quickly about, Matt, is what is the Center on Rural Innovation and why does Vermont need something like that? Sure. Uh, so the Center on Rural Innovation uh, was created in 2017 to address the rural opportunity gap. Uh, we uh, have, over, over uh, the years, uh, urban and rural places have traditionally actually tracked each other economically. Sometimes one will do a little better, sometimes one will do a little worse, uh, but they've basically tracked over, over time. Uh, that all changed in 2008. Uh, and with the uh, Great Recession, uh, rural and urban places just diverged in their economic uh, 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 trajectory. Uh, urban places came roaring back to their pre-recession levels and rural places did not. Uh, and there was a few drivers to that. Uh, the, uh, the automation of traditional rural jobs uh, the second was uh, globalization uh, through both policy and, and technology uh, that allowed for uh, larger companies to look for lower cost labor, not just in lower cost uh, rural America, but lower cost uh, places across the globe. And the third was the decline in entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. uh, which had been falling for the 30 years prior to 2008. Uh, and what, it, what that meant was that uh, when uh, the economic shock of 2008 happened, uh, the uh, outsourcing uh, to other parts of the, the, the world uh, accelerated, automation accelerated, but there also wasn't the farm team of companies to come in behind the ones that would naturally you know, go away when there, there is a recession. Uh, and so coming out of the uh, 2008, uh, there were uh, definitely winners and losers in the economy. Uh, the winners were largely focused on digital economy jobs, uh, the, the uh, benefit uh, of automation, which was almost exclusively in, uh, in urban places and rural places uh, took the hit. Uh, and um, pre-COVID in 2020, uh, you saw 5% of all technology jobs being based in rural places, even though rural America represents conservatively 15% of the nation's workforce. Uh, so that gap alone uh, accounted for this huge uh, differential in uh, wages, uh, in employment, uh, and other things like uh, the demographics uh, in various parts of the country. So we, we started the Center on Rural Innovation to hit those issues head on, uh, to be able to make sure that uh, we could uh, build digital economy ecosystems in rural places. Uh, we started with a pilot in, in Springfield, Vermont, 
which had been, you know, the machine tool and innovation capital of the country uh, for 40 years. It had the highest per capita income in the state of Vermont uh, until it didn't. Uh, and it uh, definitely took the hit of machine tool finally uh, for all intents and purposes, leaving for good around 2000. Uh, and, but they also had built gigabit speed internet, uh, the, you know, fastest broadband speeds uh, in, in the world uh, to the home. They just hadn't figured out how to leverage that for economic renewal. Uh, so we started with that work uh, in Springfield. Uh, we were then uh, able to receive funding to start bringing that work to other parts of the country of, of building digital economy jobs, as well as uh, scalable uh, tech companies that were uh, locally grown uh, and be able to uh, create a network. Because we also believe that in this uh, early stage of transitioning uh, rural economies, we're going to have to have uh, a collaborator. Right, because there isn't quite the, the deal flow or the talent flow in any individual rural community. Um, but if you create a collaborative uh, like we're doing, uh, you get network value. And uh, so that's part of our whole effort. Uh, so we are, we're, we're headquartered in Heartland Three Corners, but we're working with communities across uh, 18 states uh, and just finding unbelievable uh, leaders, uh, people like Bob Flint, uh, who we were talking to, be, uh, talking about before the program, uh, who are committed uh, to their community's economic uh, future, but also understanding that they have to change uh, and embrace uh, jobs for the future. I'd love to just um, drill a little bit down into something before we move into the study. Um, okay. When you mentioned the decline in entrepreneurship, I think when people first hear that off the cuff, it sounds as if like people just weren't being as creative as they used to be. And so I want to name that entrepreneurship is not just this magical spirit that we talk about in politics, but in fact is an ecosystem that was dampened by troubles with access to finance, with cons deep consolidations mm -hmm. in markets and opportunity. And so it's, um, when I think about the network that you're hoping to create, it's really creating an ecosystem for that rather than just um, people's magical creativity. Because lots of people are creative, but only some people have access to capital. Right. And, and in order to have a, a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem, uh, you've got to be intentional about it, right? You've got to, to, to your, your point, uh, it, is, it has to be uh, you know, understanding how that can work uh, you know, in some ways, having people who give permission uh, for folks to take a risk and then mm -hmm. to make sure that there is true access to capital that is democratized. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So let's dive in to the report that uh, the Center on Rural Innovation did around um, employment impacts and COVID. Uh, one thing I found interesting is that it seems in both... Um, now, actually, I wanted to clarify this. You talk about non-metro mm -hmm. and metro areas. Mm -hmm. Are they all in rural communities? Like, or is are you talking New York City versus Brattleboro? <laughs> so you know, the, one of the challenges with being an organization that's committed to rural is the uh, wide ranging definitions of what is rural. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's always funny to me when I, I have people on the one hand saying, what you're doing work in Springfield? Vermont, that's not rural. Yeah. And then other people to me say, oh, you're doing rural. So you mean like St. Louis, 
And I'm like, no, no, not that. That is not what we're doing. So there is, uh, and then the, the federal government actually doesn't help, which is usually the best, usually the arbiter for how you define different things mm -hmm. along uh, geographic and demographic trends. And, and we have counted uh, no fewer than uh, 20 different definitions uh, of rural, some of them uh, in conflict with one another. So oh, fun. Uh, and I, I think especially in Vermont, um, and I imagine this might be true in other rural states, mm -hmm. the rural is very much a felt experience rather than a demographic experience. And so I'm a member of the Rural Economic Development Caucus mm -hmm. in the state house. And I get teased a little bit like, oh, you're from Brattleboro, you shouldn't be here. And I'm like, well, I live on a dirt road with no cell phone service. And so I think I should be here because those are the problems of rural economic development. Um, similarly, when we talk about small businesses and micro businesses in Vermont, when we talk about small businesses, people are thinking of, you know, five to 10 employees, when in fact, small businesses in America, we're talking about, you know, less than 450 employees sometimes. Exactly. So yeah, it's a really, so I appreciate that we're spending this time in definition land. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah. What, so we, we actually think that the, uh, the, the Center on Medicaid and Medicare actually does the best job of differentiating between uh, urban and rural. We haven't figured out why they got that granular, but, but they seem to do it right. And it passes uh, at least a straight face test. Uh, and, but, but in broad strokes, uh, we're looking at communities between uh, 5,000 and 45,000 in size for our work, not for the impact. I mean, obviously we're headquartered in a community of you know, 3,500 people. Um, but but the, the places where we're doing this work of uh, building digital economy ecosystems, that's, that's the range. And they're not suburbs. Uh, and it's usually pretty easy to figure out which are suburbs and, and which are not in terms of proximity to very large metros uh, and where employment flows go. Uh, so metro and non-metro is one of the definitions that's out there. Uh, it's not a bad one. Uh, it's sometimes, you know, aggregated by county, which becomes problematic, as you can uh, probably imagine. Um, you know, it's it's a a, a very uh, different thing to, um, uh, to 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 be in uh, Baltimore, uh, Vermont, than uh, White River Junction, Vermont. Uh, but it is still um, a, a good delineation uh, across uh, the national uh, landscape. So that's, that's the one that we used and it's the way that this data has been broken down. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, I think what I found interesting from your report was just how in many ways, um, er, uh, non-metro and metro areas have both seen an increase in jobs mm -hmm. and a decrease in unemployment. Um, but what really surprised me were two things. One, um, that it seems even though the metro areas had an initial bigger economic shock from COVID, that the recovery rate for both areas seems or types of community seems to be about the same. Mm -hmm. But I think it's really important for people to note, because as you noted, that recovery doesn't look the same in every place in the sense for some places it's a V, you know, whoa, mm -hmm. we had the crash and now we're recovering. But for a lot of places, it's actually a W. You have the crash and then a little recovery and then, you, you know, and and I think that's really important, especially for Vermont as we go into, I think a lot of people are considering us going into a recovery phase right now. And yet there's a lot of people who are still in crisis mode. 
and we is no are nowhere near recovery. Um, and I just think that's something to really important to keep coming back to 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 remind us about recovery and what it needs and what it looks like. Um, how about for you, Matt? What what do you think is really crucial right now for rural economies post COVID or during COVID? I should say. Yeah, on a big picture level, I think there's two uh, things. We are uh, at risk with the pandemic of having a repeat of 2008. Right? The, the same kind of economic shock that facilitated uh, more investment in automation uh, is going to be uh, here in spades uh, for, uh, in the pandemic, because not only do you have the issue of wanting to cut uh, overall costs of, of labor and willingness to do long-term investments, especially with low interest rates. Um, but you also don't, you want to set up situations where you can avoid human contact altogether uh, and because of the pandemic. And so there's going to be a lot of continued pressure. You've seen it in places like, uh, there was a story about uh, the Land's End facility in, in rural Wisconsin. Uh, that was investing, you know, significantly in automating the 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 already uh, fairly high tech processes that they had there. Um, you even have, you know, innovators in Vermont who are figuring out how to use robots to flip wheels of cheese, uh, because that's a actually a pretty time-consuming and sometimes dangerous process that re you know limits the height of the ceilings you can do stuff. And they're seeing a boost in that area. We need to understand that that has implications. Uh, and ideally that we can get ahead of that uh, because it could lead to this kind of um, division uh, happening uh, again uh, uh, along geographic lines. Uh, the, the opportunity uh, is that people are rethinking uh, where tech jobs can take place. And that's true for larger uh, tech companies uh, who are, are suddenly abandoning their dogma that everyone has to be sitting in the same you know, set of city blocks or whatever it is, uh, and having worked for one of those tech companies uh, from White River Junction, Vermont, by the way, and I had colleagues who didn't realize five years into us working together that I wasn't living in California. Uh, you know, this, this is a doable uh, thing, but, but there is now a force function to open that aperture. And in some cases, companies saying that they're going to switch to that permanently. And that creates a real opportunity for looking for uh, looking at at talent uh, and the kind of create creative contributions to the uh, tech economy uh, happening from anywhere. Uh, but then there are some other uh, you know challenges uh, that are associated with this. We are seeing uh, uh, evidence that people are moving uh, with their tech jobs, so specifically uh, independent contractors who are in the technology profession uh, moving to, to rural places. In fact, we saw a 300% increase mm -hmm. uh, in the number of independent technologists uh, saying that they were living in uh, rural places uh, versus urban between you know, February and May. Um, and, and we saw increases in employment in a lot of rural places, but you didn't see as dramatic a decrease in unemployment. unemployment yeah. mm -hmm. And you know, while there is plenty of room to get back to equity on you know more people with uh, high-paying jobs, you know, coming back to rural places or moving to rural places, we have a real risk of uh, a a division uh, 
uh, and greater stratification than we're already seeing uh, in rural communities. And that's, that's why we are putting a, a huge emphasis uh, right now on uh, deploying uh, skilling programs for tech jobs for people who are economically displaced uh, in rural places so that they can also benefit from this opening of an aperture of where those kinds of tech jobs can come from. Now, there are lots of challenges with that, uh, especially since tech companies uh, are not used to onboarding uh, new employees, uh, particularly newly trained employees without being in person. They're going to have to figure it out, right? Mm -hmm. if, if Zillow has gone all remote, they're going to need to figure out how to bring on new people without everyone sitting uh, together. Uh, but so we, can I, I we need to, jump in for a second? So before people would even um, need to onboard people, they would need to be interested in hiring people. And so I, you know, we see this huge influx of folks who already have high paying tech jobs who are moving mm -hmm. here. And I have seen some evidence that high, you know, hiring processes seem to have words that are much more open, you know, don't have to be located here. But how folks in rural areas would have any way of actually accessing those jobs, whether it's because they have skills or not, but also whether or not they have the connections to be making those and how the folks who are moving here with their financial privilege, their um, educational privilege, their um, lack of knowledge of the Vermont real estate market privilege, all of those things, those folks that are moving here, how can we really make the most of those new Vermonters to make sure that the folks who are already living here are gaining those connections to find those jobs? Uh, Matt, before you answer that, I just <laughs> need a little clar clarification from Emily, if you don't mind. Um, so when you're talking about connections mm -hmm. and, and the folks who are moving in, it sounds to me like you're not just talking about skills like can someone code? You're talking about kind of social capital and relationships, it sounds like. Social capital, relationships, permission to seek something, knowing where to seek something, um, just the being able to access the entire social and um, intellectual sector to seek those jobs, which is more than just the knowing someone who's in that position, but also even knowing how to navigate what a resume would look like for that sector, for instance. And it I mean, sounds to me too, like if someone's a remote worker and they're moving to their home and they're staying in their home, they're not necessarily making connections to the local community. So there's that divide there. And they likely don't even know that there's a local community to make connections to. We are, you know, famously closed to outsiders. You know, it's like, in some ways, it's a secret language to even figure out when your garbage pickup is, right? right. Um, or like, you know, there's no name for the street, but you know, it's the street that used to be this other street where the, you know, the Murrays lived or whatever. Yep. So a new person coming might not be accustomed to living somewhere where there are there is community and tradition and connections. And so to even know to go out and seek that would be a revelation. Great. Thank you. Sorry, Matt. I just yeah. I needed all that in my head. No, no, no. It's it's super helpful. And, and we need to, to, to recognize our uh, our our our. our uh, shortcomings as a state in terms of uh, assuming that everyone knows all the traditions and where the uh, the everything is, including the the, the swimming holes in, in hot days of August and all of that. Um, and so I, I think there's a, a couple of answers uh, 
to your to your questions. Uh, one is that uh, what what I think is true across uh, the folks who are working at the Center on Rural Innovation is that we're all people who have deep roots in rural, uh, but also recognize we've had uh, the privilege of being able to work for national cal caliber organizations. And what I think gets us up every morning is to figure out how to make that bridge. Mm -hmm. How to make that bridge to uh, you know, access to understanding uh, how to how to look for jobs, how to be able to uh, uh, talk about your past experience in a way that is going to be recognizable uh, by a recruiter uh, at a company. I mean, one of the classic examples are people with military service, who actually have incredible skill sets for technology jobs. It's just the way that they talk about it uh, in their service record it doesn't translate uh, into the way that they talk about it in a, a Silicon Valley uh, context. Uh, and so there is um, a, a lot, that, that's, that's the work that we're doing every day. And we're, uh, I can't tell you that we have figured out all the solutions to it, um, but we're having the, the chance to really try various pieces. The other part on community uh, is, you know, is core to our work. Uh, it's a little more difficult in the pandemic, but it's not impossible. Uh, because we do, you know, actually, <laughs> at the end of the day, uh, you know, we, we, we joke that the, the real core to rural economic development are the three Bs, um, which are broadband, blues, and beer. I was scared uh, you were going to say beer. Okay. And if you, you know, <laughs> if you can... I can't help myself. Uh, I know it's, it, but it's it, you know there there is uh, this the social dynamics are so important to create uh, community uh, to create you know culture, including in a in a tech culture environment, uh, and to be able to um, uh, make sure that that is inclusive from the get go. Uh, and so there is a lot of uh, the work that we're doing at the Black River in Innovation Campus that is ensuring that people know that there is a way to uh, connect to a community of other technologists uh, and, and that there is a way to be a part of a uh, virtuous cycle. Uh, whether it's on investment or mentorship uh, mm -hmm. or being a part of a co-work space, which is bigger than just having a, a desk with a super fast internet connection. Um, so that's that's very much a, a part of what uh, we can do and, and what we need to do uh, in order to be able to have this, uh, this, this concept of be, building inclusive digital economy ecosystems uh, be successful. When speaking of beer, um, I, I'm curious if any of this work, if it's possible to not just shift the experience of people who are seeking work to give them, say, the code switching skills to be operating and permission to be operating in these other environments, but also to be working with larger technology companies and investors to actually have the cultural knowledge to be um, accessing rural folks on the terms of rural folks. So rather than um, at the risk of extreme stereotyping, I'm going to say, instead of asking rural folks to enjoy, to start enjoying IPAs, do you ever ask investors to start really drinking Budweiser? Uh, so we, uh, we do, uh, and we own, uh, that, uh, need, uh, to be able to, uh, make that uh, shift. 
And Why would companies want to make that's the part I don't understand. Like what incentive do those companies have to make that shift at all? Like I feel yeah. like we're the we're the sort of the beggars out here in rural America. No, because there's still a a, a desperate need for talent. Okay. Look, and, and I think on their best days, uh, technology companies understand that they are creative enterprises. And if they are missing out on the creativity uh, of, uh, let's say, uh, women and have been lousy at actually uh, recruiting and creating uh, welcoming environments for women in their ranks of, of coders and software designers, they're missing out on half of the perspective of the country. Mm -hmm. uh, same with uh, you know underrepresented uh, minority communities uh, that have that that are out there and are consumers and uh, need to be a part of that creative process. And I would say the same is true for geography. Uh, you know, it was it was an eye-opening experience working at Google, uh, particularly working with data center communities that were almost all rural. Mm -hmm. The assumptions that uh, many folks who had never spent any time in rural were coming to those places with mm -hmm. were completely off, including whether they could find talent there. Uh, and you know, we were uh, successful in convincing them to actually take a look, take a look at people who had uh, non-traditional uh, education backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And it turned out we found amazing uh, you know, data techs and, and others in these rural places um, that could unpack a kernel faster than anyone else, even though their job history had been, you know, as the assistant IT director at the local high school. Mm -hmm. So there is, uh, there is a, a large incentive for them to do this, especially once they get over the fact that, yes, you can do dynamic, collaborative, high bar work uh, anywhere in the country. But Emily, as we're as we're owning uh, some of our own uh, issues of of uh, you know bias in in rural places, mm -hmm. we also found fascinating is that there are actually a lot of technology jobs locally, mm -hmm. usually in non-technology companies like mm -hmm. banks, universities, yeah. and others, and they don't hire locally. Mm -hmm. They actually go and hire you know some hipster from Brooklyn mm -hmm. at probably three times the cost they would have to, because they don't recognize that there are actually technologists here, whether they're technologists who are, you know, working from their spare bedroom for a large San Francisco company, but would be mm -hmm. much happier doing their, you know, data science or coding or whatever for a, a local enterprise, uh, or that could be coming out of uh, one of our, our programs. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've been doing a lot of matchmaking uh, in that direction or helping uh, grow awareness of what's actually available mm -hmm. uh, right here locally in terms of, of tech talent. Um, we, we had a, a university we were working with in, in Kansas who was saying, you know, we would be placing uh, more of our computer science graduates locally if we only, you know, if there was only demand and we had to point out to them that they had three open positions that would be perfect for their graduates right there that they were recruiting for uh, in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. So these are these are things that we that we need to overcome as we're trying to create that critical mass. Whether it's from local companies that need that tech talent, it's people who are coming with their jobs remotely, and then cracking that code on how to bridge, uh, you know, rural talent uh, to uh, to folks who are hiring. Uh, on a national or global level. Thank you, Matt. Uh, we need to go to break. So we're going to hold it there. Uh, but stay with us. The Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7. 7.
WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and we are talking with Representative Emily Kornheiser and Matt Dunn from the Center on Rural Innovation. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having coming back. I want to talk about, go back to the, the, the study that your organization did, Matt, and talk about um, the, the concept of the, rural, the urban exodus, because we've mm-hmm. been hearing a lot about that. Mm-hmm. And it seems like looking at your report that, yes, to a certain extent, this is happening. Um, just to bring it local for folks in Wyndham County, it looks like, according to, to the Center on Rural Innovations data, Wyndham County, based on the number of second homes, could potentially see a population bump of 29%, which would be the highest in the state if this happened. So that brings me to the question, what does this mean for rural America if we have all these people coming from urban areas, bringing their jobs with them, but not necessarily being part of the local economy in the sense that their job isn't part of the local economy? Well, you know, there, there, are, there are upsides to this as well as there are going to be challenges. I mean, anytime you see a seismic shift like that, it's, uh, you, you've, you've got to be ready for, for the impacts. Uh, you know, we have for uh, a while um, actually had struggles with the number of uh, first homes uh, that were being sold as second, third, or fourth homes. In fact, I mean, there were stories in, in Woodstock, which is right near where I am, where you know the green uh, in the evening is is pitch black because no one's in the houses around the green, mm-hmm. which used to be this center of vibrancy, but, but no one was ever there, and so that's that's not a good solution, right? Um, it, re- regardless of of uh, any of these other uh, challenges that may come with it, having people who are actually you know utilizing the homes and engaging and bringing their uh, resources in to be able to uh, contribute to the economy is a good thing. Um, the, the question becomes uh, how they do that. Uh, and the question also becomes how long they're going to be here. Uh, mm-hmm. And we, we just don't know. Uh, there is certainly some evidence that people are moving up full time. I believe it was the uh, Dover School District uh, that has already seen a 25% increase in their uh, student count. Mm-hmm. Um, which is someone who has been, you know, concerned over the declining student populations in rural Vermont for mm-hmm. a long time. Mm-hmm. That's great news on a variety of levels, um, but that's not going to happen uniformly, and we have to really see whether or not how, how this all settles out. Uh, we definitely know that people moved up to their their second homes. Many people bought houses, sometimes sight unseen, driving up the uh, demand and the, the cost of these houses, uh, only to your point earlier. Um, but it's, uh, but, but we, don't, we don't know if it will return back to some uh, lower level uh, later. Um, and then the question is, how do you, uh, you know, welcome the folks who are coming uh, with their jobs in a way that they can be productive members of the community? Because again, that's how Vermont has been able to succeed as well as it has uh, f- over the years, even though we haven't had, you know, huge, uh, you know, concentrations of wealth. We have actually been careful about boom, bust cycles, types mm-hmm. of development and that kind of thing. It's been that sense of community and making sure that folks are actually a part of 
the hole that they're in. Um, that's I harder think so. than social distancing, but um, we can. Uh, but but it's it's going to it's going to be the test of whether or not this is successful for Vermont. The Vermonters that I know tend to interact with tourists in a very different welcoming way than they interact with new community members. Mm -hmm. And I, I think in both cases, they're very welcoming. It's just a very different kind of welcoming. Sure. And so I think it's a lot is gonna depend on whether folks who are sort of converting their second homes into primary homes, if they're interested in sort of staying in a tourist lifestyle full time mm -hmm. and just happening to work in terms of what that will mean for both their the types of investments they'll make in our economy, whether it's just gonna be sort of, you know, tchotchke stores, restaurants, and those are all revenue and revenue is great. Um, and certainly Brattleboro's economy is quite dependent on its tchotchke stores and restaurants. Mm -hmm. But that switch into investing in the school systems, we're seeing that um, school districts that tend to be entirely sending towns, um, or school districts that are completely school choice are having much higher bumps mm -hmm. than school districts with less choice. So people are picking their second home options in very specific ways that are gonna have um, significantly different strains. Mm -hmm. or, no, we have you know, or we have communities like Dover that if every second home converts to a primary home, the entire demographics of that area are gonna be upended completely, right? And so what even story will that, what story will we tell about that politically? The transition from, you know, the hippie, the hippie migration, I guess we could call it, you know, it took more than a decade for, you know, pr it probably took an entire generation for that generation of folks who came here to really become Vermonters and for people to really appreciate their you know, contributions to the community and for them to start making contributions economically to the community. Well, and, and also to realize and, you know, uh, that that uh, standing up and speaking seven times at your first town meeting might not go over well, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, as as uh, I have, I have deep roots that go back, you know, many, many generations in the in the Northeast Kingdom. But, you know, my father didn't grow up in Vermont. Uh, and when they came up, it, it you know, there was a transition yeah, process yeah. That, that they had to make, as well as the community and understanding uh, what, what the, the, the importance uh, of how they could contribute um, mm -hmm. without necessarily, you know, compromising or damaging uh, the, the values that they had. So mm -hmm. I, I, think it's, I think it's going to be, it's going to be very interesting um, uh, how these work through. And, and you know, you have uh, when when people make it through their first uh, mud season, uh, mm -hmm. that's not in a pandemic, is always an enlightening moment, uh, <laughs> and 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 such things. But you know, I'm 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 hopeful. Uh, mm -hmm. I believe that uh, we are in a place where there's been a lot of um, uh, there's there's you know been a, a lot of exodus of of uh, particularly younger families. Mm -hmm. uh, and younger people, and the potential for that changing, I think, is is great. Uh, and I also think that there 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 are some other uh, things that, on a policy basis, could help uh, you know direct this in, in a different direction. Um, and I would I'm really curious about that, particularly because I'm getting a little caught up in the cultural challenges because it feels like we're deep in the thick of that right now. Mm -hmm. But 
so much of our investment as a legislature have been in sort of propping up what was mm -hmm. instead of thinking about what needs to be or what will be. Sure. And so really curious to hear from you what policy shifts and what investments might be needed to really think about what a post-COVID or mid-COVID economy could look like. Yeah. So let me let me give you just a, a couple of thoughts, and I've shared mm -hmm. this with, uh, with folks from the, the legislature who have, mm -hmm. who have asked over the last year. Um, one is obviously broadband. Um, I mean, I think yeah. one of the other big indicators that any realtor will tell you when they're hearing from folks about, yes. oh, I need to buy a house in Vermont and get out of New York City is, will I be able to connect to the internet? Mm -hmm. uh, and fortunately, there have been innovative, uh, you know, small telephone companies like Waitsfield and Vtel, as well as uh, innovative social enterprises like EC Fiber um, that have been out there showing models mm -hmm. for delivering world-class broadband uh, to communities. We're not there yet. Um, but there's been some excellent progress and, and frankly, the legislature has stepped up with, with resources uh, mm -hmm. to make sure that those kinds of uh, pre-development uh, grants can happen uh, mm -hmm. to allow for that planning to move forward and to move to actually building that infrastructure at an accelerated rate. Mm -hmm. um, the second is, uh, is around housing, uh, which uh, you know is, is, is definitely, uh, it was a concern before, and mm -hmm. it's going to continue to accelerate as more people realize uh, the amazing place that, that we have in Vermont uh, and decide that they want to be a part of it uh, for the, the shorter long term. Um, and I think that there is, you know, certainly a, an ongoing commitment uh, to bonding for dollars to accelerate that housing investment that we've actually seen uh, in the last couple of years. I also think there's ways to do diversify the kinds of housing that the state is investing in. We absolutely need to have investment in uh, permanently affordable housing. Okay. Must happen. We've got to get there. Um, but there are also ways that the state could incentivize uh, market rate downtown housing. Mm -hmm. uh, that could allow for a variety of different kinds of investor types to come in mm -hmm. to put real resources into uh, livable, walkable uh, communities uh, mm -hmm. in our, our smaller downtowns uh, and give options for, for folks. Um, so it's not either, uh, you know, permanently affordable or you've got to be able to, to pay, you know, $600,000 for a house, right? There, there's lots of room in between. And we've and talked about the missing middle quite a bit mm -hmm. and had Maura Collins on the show, I think more than once um, yeah. to talk about this stuff, yeah. And so there's, there's lots of room for that, especially in some of the communities that have been hit hard by the economic transitions. Mm -hmm. There's just not a lot of inventory uh, for folks who are, Early professionals uh, mm -hmm. who may be, you know, uh, in in a tech job that's that's local or remote or whatever mm -hmm. else, or from here, uh, to be able to have that uh, that place that they would want to live. Um, and and there's lots of of buildings and capacity for it uh, if we focus on it. And then the other piece is trying to figure out how to uh, provide some level of incentive for people to move to places that have capacity for that kind of growth and for absorbing more folks, um, which is just not going to be the same uh, across the board. Um, and so we, we actually proposed uh, uh, a, a program uh, that would allow for someone to have a, a um, reduction in their student loans mm -hmm. if they purchase a home in a uh, non-urban new mm -hmm. market tax credit census tract. 
Mm-hmm. Right. New market tax credit census tracts are not perfect, but they're an interesting national uh, demarcation of places that are s- struggling economically. Uh, and if we did that, I think we could, uh, you know, kill two birds with one stone. Uh, one is really address the uh, higher education debt crisis mm-hmm. that we're facing as a country uh, and encourage uh, particularly uh, younger professionals uh, to locate into our St. Johnsbury's, our Springfields, mm-hmm. our Newports, our Bennington's. I mean, our, it's, am I, it's basically everything except for sort of the Chittenden County, Montpelier Beltway, and the Upper Valley that we're talking about when we talk about that, just for our listeners who might not have all of their demographics in mind. Yep, yep. It, it, but it also includes some, you know, rural places that, I mean, it includes Randolph, uh, mm-hmm. It includes uh, and it includes some some very rural areas that are struggling economically. I think mm-hmm. most of the Northeast Kingdom yep. uh, would be included in that grouping, but it would just it would it would provide a nudge uh, that would have uh, that would be predicated on real investment, so not just some fly by night. Someone actually saying we're going to buy a place, we're going to be here for you know some some period of time, uh, and we're going to put down some roots. Mm-hmm. So. Go ahead, Elka. Oh, I was just going to ask, one thing Emily and I talk a lot about on the, sh- the Montpelier Happy Hour are wages and how wages in Vermont um, really need a help, a helping hand up. So I understand that a lot of tech jobs pay well, but how do we, how can we use this opportunity around tech jobs to, to kind of start raising wages in, in general? And how do we make sure that a company outside Vermont isn't just, or any rural community, isn't just looking at the rural community as an easy way to get, to pay lower wages. Does that make sense? Question. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm going to push back on it a, a little bit uh, in in that, that last statement, because I think there is a perfectly good market force that uh, says that it is insane to be only paying people who have to live in a location where they're spending $4,500 a month for a one bedroom apartment, right? That, you know, the, 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 the difference in cost of living right now between urban and rural places is so insane that I think we have a moment where we can say perfectly reasonably that uh, a, a tech employer can actually source superb talent in a place where they can pay them less and still have that person uh, have a, a an equivalent uh, um, experience of living as someone who's trying to you know live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, or Brooklyn, or or uh, the Haight. So I mean, there is there is a um, I, I think there there's plenty of room to say you know what we 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 can uh, actually provide you uh, i worked for a tech company that was based in wilder vermont during the 90s and you know it was founded by you know two dartmouth grads that were solving a, a market problem in the commercial printing industry uh, we grew it to 120 employees and and my uh, and the founder at one point said you know why we're successful it's because we get geeks cheap right and 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 they live incredibly well where they are he also said there's a reason why we give such great maternity and paternity leave, because as soon as they have kids, they know this is where they want to be for the rest of their life. 
And so we have great employee retention. And I think that's fine. And I don't think it is in that sense, you know, predatory because we're talking about people who are still going to be making well, well above uh, the living wage. The, the harder question is about how do you make that translate into other kinds of jobs? Now, I'm actually a, a, a strong believer in a $15 minimum wage. I also think the best thing you can do to actually support entrepreneurship is to have universal health care, right? And, yeah. and it's always fascinating to me when I talk to sometimes reporters or political types who are like, wait, how can you be pro-business and pro-single-payer health care? I said, you know what? Takes a huge <laughs> cost off of businesses. Of course. <laughs> and you should actually talk to folks who are in Silicon Valley, who are actually some of the biggest advocates for, you know, moving to universal single-payer health care, because they know what it's like if you're actually going to give opportunities for people to start companies, to be able to innovate, to be able to take, you got to get, deal with their student debt, and you've got to deal with the, uh, the, the existential threat of a health care crisis taking them down. So all of that aside, the, 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 the fact that there is going to be higher wages in the communities, hopefully not dependent on one company, because we also get in trouble when we do that, mm -hmm. that are able to have a diversified base and are um, being able to benefit from the automation that is coming. And I have, I have many friends who say, oh, shouldn't we just stop you know, automation from taking place? And, and, and I guess my response is good luck, right? But we have plenty of, of innovative people uh, that can actually embrace the jobs that are going to be the, the drivers of that innovation, just like rural uh, folks did in the past. I mean, the, the, the technology that went into the, you know, first washing machines came from farmers who were trying to do other things with crops, right? And they were just noodling around. They said, huh, this kind of works. And folks at the extension service we were able to help connect them to uh, ways to patent that te technology. Mm -hmm. And then you had the Maytags of the world. We have to get back to that kind of an understanding that entrepreneurship can happen uh, anywhere uh, in the country. We just have to make that uh, accessible. And then we need to make sure that we're uh, doing things to lift all boats uh, across the board. And so again, that's not necessarily an understanding that we need to get to. We need to really build the infrastructure to make that possible. Amen. Yeah. So we have just about five minutes left, but I know Emily wanted to touch base on uh, innovation hubs. So mm -hmm. what, what questions did you yeah. have for Matt? Thanks. Um, so I think we have one of the themes here is sort of the story we tell about our own communities, right? And I think one of the dangers that you mentioned with um, a huge number of folks moving here with jobs from outside is that we're going to sort of further the divide in our communities. And part of that, I think, is that we have a lot of people who might have a story of Vermont that's thriving because they're not aware of what's happening to their neighbors. Um, and it's one of the things that's interesting about Vermont, the way our sort of housing is very mixed on each road. And I appreciate that. So when I think about um, the work that I did in innovation hubs back when I was traveling internationally and consulting on that, so much of that work and the original impetus around these innovation hubs was in countries that were really making a very large leap from one type of economy to another. We're very much an emerging market 
where folks had not, you know, accessed smartphone technology before, where folks often hadn't accessed computers before. We were moving from sort of no phone, no copper lines to um, full cloud service. And so because we were making that leap, there was so much potential for growth. And so it was very easy to both excite people who had never had access to that kind of connectivity before, to have much larger markets for international companies to invest in. And so when I think to, of doing that in the context of rural communities that um, consider themselves developed economies that were, you know, are part of what is hypothetically one of the greatest economies on earth, how does how do you translate that in the absence of sort of all of the gaping hope and potential that folks in uh, emerging markets see? Yeah, so it's 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 hard, and it's hard for a couple of different reasons. One is the the narrative that has started to get baked in, mm-hmm. which is that the reason that rural places have not been able to succeed in building t- technology jobs is because that's not what they do. Right, that somehow something is baked into rural people's DNAs that, that they can't do coding or technology work, yep. and it is, and, and it's it's prevalent both, uh, you know, in in you know big cities who don't understand rural people, but it's also sometimes prevalent within rural communities and rural organizations. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I have to say that there are sometimes when I go to, you know, rural economic development summits. And I talk about the ability to build digital economy ecosystems. They say, oh, well, you're not talking about rural then. <laughs> I'm like, what, what, what are you talking about, right? Uh, and I haven't, gone, I haven't said that, you, you know, we got to have people coming out of MIT or that you got to have people who are, you know, working for big tech company here or there or whatever. I'm just saying technology jobs and innovation. So, um, and, and because it seems like it should be something that should be available, it, it then gets baked into this sense of, oh, there just must be something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're doing a lot more uh, narrative shifting than I would have thought was going to be necessary. I've actually had people have said to me, uh, maybe you should take the word rural out of the name of your organization because it has such negative connotations. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, Emily, you may have been ready for that. I, I wasn't, right? I was like, yeah. what are you talking about? It's an asset. It's great. It's excellent. But we've got a lot of work to do, mm-hmm. uh, both you know, within uh, you know, our own communities and organizations as well as uh, externally uh, to overcome that. Because I think, and and I think it's because there is this notion that uh, maybe the world isn't flat, but the U.S. sure is, right? (laughs) Except it's not. Um, And it's and 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 while I deeply believe uh, there in the age of the internet, there should be no limit to where digital economy jobs and entrepreneurship should be able to take place. Mm -hmm. uh, We've we've got to be able to get to the place where we have proof of concept. We can tell that story. And we can tell it in a variety of different angles. Sa- I mean, it's the sa- same is true. There's there is a belief that uh, when you're talking about rural America, you're talking about white America. Yes, mm-hmm. not true at all. Not yeah. true at all. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, if we're focused on uh, you know equity and inclusion, uh, if you are black or brown and in rural America, your your challenges to be able to succeed are even higher 
than most folks who are in, in uh, similar demographics in, in urban places. So we, we've got some important, great work to do, but we need to overcome those uh, you know, stereotypes, uh, including uh, stereotypes about ourselves mm -hmm. uh, and our, our community's capacities, as well as those uh, external. And mm -hmm. we think we're making progress. We've got a lot of work to do. Um, but that, that's, that's become, I think, the biggest barrier uh, to the success, along with making sure that we're, you know, actually having broadband, which is the electricity <laughs> of our time, uh, which we have not quite solved yet. But even in those places where we have solved it, and, mm -hmm. and lots of rural folks who've just used creative, innovative ways to to, to get it done, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's it, it's still not having the immediate uh, economic uh, benefit um, mm -hmm. that you might uh, hope for. Thank you. We are out of time, unfortunately, but Matt Dunn from the Center on Rural Innovation, it was such a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you for joining us. Um, Thank you for having me. Emily, if people want to reach out to you, how can they do that? You can find me on emilykornheiser.org or on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, only Emily Kornheiser in the whole world. And um, restarting weekly community forums via Zoom, 10 a.m. every Saturday. You can find the link to join me on Front Porch Forum on the website or on any of those socials I listed. Look forward to many more conversations. And as always, the Montpelier Happy Hour can be found on WVWLP Brattleboro 107.7 every Friday at 2 p.m. And as well as our Vermontitude Facebook page and our Vermontitude SoundCloud page. Have a great weekend. Matt, how do we find you? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Read so, this uh, study if anyone really wants to read the study. Right. Uh, if, uh, our, our website is ruralinnovation.us. Uh, and you can find the study there uh, under our, our recent publications, as well as other information on the work we're doing. Sign up for our newsletter, which is uh, a monthly content-rich uh, newsletter on the, the work that we're doing and that we're seeing and, and some of those uh, narrative shifts. So uh, encourage people to, to visit the site uh, and get involved. Thank you.